I find recruitment a complete conflict of interest. I find it to be, I actually think it's objectively unethical. I think that it doesn't make sense that there are commissions based on uh, what you pay them because then you're financially incentivized to find the most expensive person or to find the one that is going to present the best, interview the best, um, and your, your interests aren't necessarily in the, in the client's favour. And, and get ready to be shocked by the real impact of job performance evaluations. Marnie, you've got to hire an extra 50 people this month. I could have hiring consultants up and running in two weeks because I've built a training program around that and I know that when I hire them, they're likely to be high performers. It's time to align accountability with authenticity. Tune in to the episode where we reveal all. Marnie Jones is the mastermind behind Talent X, a company revolutionising the recruitment industry. With a remarkable track record of attracting three times the average number of applicants and boasting a hiring success rate over 70%, nearly double the reported average. Marnie is redefining the standards in talent acquisition. Marnie unpacks common yet harmful hiring misconceptions that hinder businesses from securing the best candidates and inadvertently attract detrimental ones. She shares specific strategies for advertising roles which have proven to make Talent X's process two times faster and 40% cheaper than typical recruiters. Join me as Marnie, a non-corporate small business expert, shares her insights on hiring smarter. Tell me a bit about your, uh, is that word offensive feeling when being called a recruiter? Yeah. So, um, I find recruitment in general and when I'm, when any, any, I just want a disclaimer, anything I say hereafter is not every recruiter. I just kind I'm just going to take a general stance based on my experience and observation. Um, I find recruitment a complete conflict of interest. I find it to be. I actually think it's objectively unethical. I think that it doesn't make sense that there are commissions based on uh, what you pay them because then you're financially incentivized to find the most expensive person or to find the one that is going to present the best, interview the best, um, and your, your interests aren't necessarily in the, in the client's um, like favor and, and, and even the candidate as well, because you might put forward a candidate just because they are asking for more money and you know how desperate the client is too. Like if you're really desperate and I know I could get an extra 20 grand out of you, like, oh, you want to pay them a hundred, but I know you're so desperate. I could be like, you must pay me if you would, then I'm going to put forward someone who's asking for 120 or I'm going to lie, which I've, I've literally caught recruiters out directly like that lying. Um, when someone would take a hundred and the recruiter saying they'll only take 120. So I think that it's you're incentivizing unethical behavior and for them to cut corners and then the focus doesn't become, is the candidate actually valuable? Do they fit your business and do you fit them? And, and is this going to be a, a, likely to be a fruitful relationship? That's not really taken into consideration. And so I actually, when people say, so you're a recruiter, like you just asked me before, do you use like LinkedIn? And I'm like, no, we don't recruit like that because when you, most recruiters have databases and then they poach and it's my belief 99% of the time that it's no use poaching someone because then they're after poachable. And people forget that. It's like, well, you know, it's, it's, 
But also the first question that they ask, a candidate asks when you approach them is, well, what's the pay? Then it becomes a money-centric person. You don't want money-centric staff. You want you want group-centric or career-centric staff that that are there that would that would gladly take the role for five grand less than what they're asking for because they love it and they love the culture and they're excited by it. And so all these practices, most of the practices that recruiters take and the approach and how they're paid, I just find like I have to like tone it down a little bit. So I'm gonna try and not be so rude, but I just find it a little bit gross and it's embarrassing to be in the recruiter category because of that. But in saying that I'm not a recruiter by that means at all, because we don't know. Yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in that. And unfortunately, I guess I've had similar experiences dealing with recruiters. But one of the terms you use is recruitment accountability. You're not talent X is not a recruitment company, but then you use the word recruitment accountability. Tell us a bit more about that. So we're recruiters in the sense that we find you staff and you pay for that service. We're just not recruiters in the sense that everyone has a definition for when you have a database, you specialize in a certain role, you get paid commission on we don't recruit like that. Um, so we are recruiters. We're just not per what people think and they misconstrue what what we actually do. But when it comes to recruitment accountability, I think that recruiters should be focused on measuring the value of a candidate. Now, now when I started this company, when I started TalentX, I had to ask myself, how do I want to measure productivity? And so I created a few different criteria. So I think that the staff member should stay 12 months or more I think beyond 12 months, it's a client's responsibility. But for me, I'm willing to take responsibility for 12 months. I think that they should meet or exceed role expectation. And I think that there should be no toxic or like horrible behavior. And if there is, we'll replace them for free. So we do have replacement options up to 12 months, which means that that makes me confident that the first criteria is met, that they meet or exceed role expectations, because if they didn't, clients would use the replacement guarantees. Does that make sense? So I put the guarantees in place so that they would feel like they can just come to us and say, she's not working out, he's not working out, can you play some please? And I go, sure, because you're going to use that. So that's how we measure our, what we call a hiring and 12-month retention success rate. So when when we say that we our hiring and 12-month retention success rate is 75.2%, that's the criteria that has to be met. And I feel that all recruiters should be held to that standard because a lot of recruiters use stats like, um, like fill rate, like you give me 10 roles and I'll fill five. But I could fill them with five terrible people. So that to me means nothing to me. Like that means nothing to me whatsoever. Um, so I think that that is how recruiters should be held accountable. So from the viewpoint of how they measure their success and then also um, from how they're paid, which is non, I don't think it should be commissioned at all. I actually think it should be like borderline illegal. I don't know how, like when you read the definition of a conflict of interest, it's directly recruitment. They're incentivized to, to, to raise um, to, to charge you more. It's just, it, it just, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me. So they're the two things that I would call accountable recruitment. And that's what we hold ourselves to account. And it's challenging. It's hard because you do get some odd situations where someone might leave within 12 months. And then we've got to ask ourselves, is that because we hired, you know, like their dad passed away. Do we take accountability for that? Like, is that, is that out? Well, no. And then we ask ourselves, were they a good candidate? Would you have kept them? Yes. Then we did our job. So there are caveats to them leaving within 12 months. When I say leaving, either they quit or you fired them due to like not being satisfied with it. Yeah. Is it, has there been a situation where I guess that's come up and what, like what approach do you take how, how, that sort of working with a client? Tell us a bit more about, okay. about that. Cause it would be a, a tough conversation type situation, wouldn't it? Well, the funny thing is, is that because no other recruiter does that, clients don't really expect it of us. 
there are times where clients have called us. There's one time we've hired maybe I would say two toxic staff. Out of all the staff we've hired, I'd say only a couple have been like what I would call to- just just problematic, super problematic. And, you know, the client calls me and they're telling me, and I'm just like, I'm so sorry. And it's nine months later. And I'm like, I, that's my fault. They're like, it's not your fault. That's, you, can't, you can't know. And I'm like, but I hired them. How is this not my, like, this is my responsibility. So we take a lot more responsibility than our clients are even used to. So they don't even really see it that way. But we're so, like, for example, a client of mine, I was doing some performance chart, sorry, some org chart designing with his company. And I was talking to his HR manager. And I look at this woman and she's very rude and she's very abrupt and she's not friendly and I thought this is like we should we should replace her she's not I'm she doesn't deserve to be in his company because I loved the CEO I call him he's like you hired her I was like what and I found out we hired her I didn't know because I don't run the recruitment side and um I went and did a big investigation and found that we didn't ref check her properly and so I called him right away and I was like dude like let's replace her like I'm so sorry I think that if you don't these are the things that are going to happen we have a personality profile that's quite accurate so I could predict I'm like this is going to happen this is going to happen this is going to happen he's like she's only been there for a few weeks let's see how it goes and then he calls me back after two weeks and he's like oh my god everything you said that was going to happen is happening can you please replace her I'm like of course he's like no recruiter has ever called me to be like hey we hired you the wrong person can we please replace her free because this is the other thing about commission if I have filled that role with you and you've paid me a commission, and then I go to replace that person, I'm not going to give you the most valuable candidate to replace them, am I? Because I'm not going to get that money twice. So instead, I'm going to give it to someone else where I get that commission. So, And in all, we looked at three or four different other recruiter contracts, and they say they will endeavor to replace them. They never, they never guarantee, whereas we guarantee, of course, we'll replace them. So it's interesting because we, our, our, our sense of responsibility over our clients is, is is I think actually unheard of in recruitment. Like I've never heard any recruiter talk the way that we do. And we went to a networking group and Maddie sat, my sister sat with a bunch of recruiters and she was shocked. She came out really shocked. She was like, I cannot believe their focus and what they measure themselves by. And she would, they talk about fill rate. They're, they're proud. They get given 10 jobs. They, they place five and Maddie put her hand up. Like, what about if they don't work out and they kind of like can't answer. Like, like that, it's like does not compute. Like they don't even think that way. Like I tell you right now, most recruiters do not think that way. It just reminds me, and again, I know you said earlier, like we're not, it's, it's not everybody, we're not tarring everybody with the same brush. There are no. some good ones in amongst there, but it's a little bit like the the thing that pops to my head is real estate sales, right? There's, it's, it's it comes across as, a, I've never been in it, but a cutthroat sort of business. I know people that are in it and have been in it and the ethics, the morals seem a little bit to be desired, um, but there are some good ones there and, and they attract Good people, they t- attract good clients. So, and that this is part of our conversation. Conversation say about the attracting of the right candidate because if I'm understanding correctly, talent X, okay, you're sort of redefining or doing what you can to redefine that term recruiter, being a you know, recruiting people, which I completely understand. You you need to attract the right people, and the difference for you guys is those three accountability points like staying for 12 months or more exceeding role expectations and having that good quality high level of behavior which i guess is matched with the values of the organization give us a bit of an overview of your attraction part of the hiring process and then maybe we can unpack that a little bit more yep so um what i've learned as like a natural law is what you put out if you put out something you will attract whatever you're communicating so that's very true for marketers. They know that. You don't, if you have three types of clients that could purchase your product, you don't write one ad on Google that says, this is for moms or young women 
or anyone that has a dog. Like, no, you would write three different ads for the woman with the dog, the mum, and the twenty and the twenty-five year old, right? So we take that same approach, um, and people don't realize it's a law. Like, it's actually a natural. This is a max maxim. It's a, it's a truth that I've observed myself. So what we do is we in very specific ways. Um, where first you've got to really decide what it is you're looking for. I know that sounds so simple, but most people are very confused. And the more people involved in the hiring process, the more different the ideas there are on what that role entails. So we define every role into their necessities and their preferences. So what are the necessities that you need for this candidate to have that you're willing to say no if they don't have those things? And what are your preferences? Because people don't know the difference. For example, I asked a client, um, how many years do you want in this role? And she said they have to have done the role for 13 years. And I said, okay. So she listed a bunch of other stuff. And then I went back to that and I said, so if they had had 12 years and six months experience, you wouldn't take them. Oh, no, I would. Right. So it isn't 13 years. So what is the bare minimum that you're willing, if they had everything else, you would remove them or not progress with them moving forward? And, and people don't define that. So we go through that process with the client and actually clarifies in their own head, actually, I would take someone that has less experience. Now that I think about it, I just want them to have a good personality and to be really hardworking and I'll train them on the rest. Whereas they told us that in five years. So that opens up candidate pools. When you're really honest with yourself about what you want, you have access to other candidates you wouldn't have otherwise considered until it might be too late where you have screened a bunch of people and then you get six months later and you're like, actually, I would take someone, but then it's too late. So I find people aren't actually 100% aligned on that. That's the first thing. Once you define the necessities and preferences, you then write a very detailed and tailored ad to what we call different hiring archetypes. So you have to then define what type of people could do this job. Like I just said, for example, normally there's at least two archetypes. Let's just take an example of, um, okay, a marketing manager. Do you want to hire a marketing manager? Now, the two archetypes that I would probably suggest for most people for that is someone who's done the job, they've done it before, they've got amazing experience, you can throw them in the role and they'll be happy. The other is someone who maybe is a junior who's been, who's been working their ass off to get into a management role. They've basically run the department altogether, but they never got the title and they really, really want that. So there's two archetypes right there. You could then also go, well, I'm willing to hire a sales manager who, who wants to go into marketing. So that's the third archetype. So you can just define different types. You can even define archetypes based on, for example, um, work from home or work hours. Like a mom returning to the workforce, that's an archetype. No, depending on, no matter what the role is, if you want to advertise to a mum who's returning to the workforce, you would write the ad to her. You wouldn't write it to all the other potential candidates. So when you define your archetypes, you then write an ad to that archetype. So you don't write one ad, and this is how most ads go, by the way. At Talent X, we uh, specialize in blah, blah, blah. And to be successful in this role, you must have. And, and then it lists all your, all your preferences, not necessities. People list in their ads preferences. Like you have eight years experience, you know, all these softwares. But if you put in there, you know, all these softwares, that can screen out people who don't that you would have hired because you're happy to train them. So don't put anything in the ad that you're not willing to basically reject them based on. So you write it. And then, by the way, they highlight benefits. All ads highlight benefits. These are the benefits of the role. We don't do that. We highlight challenges. And that, that attracts a very different type of person. Remember I said before, like there's, there's self-centric, money-centric people. You don't want money-centric unless it's a sales role, generally. Um, you want group career-centric people. So you really want to highlight the challenges of the role so that someone is, is, is in love with the challenges because then they're more likely to last when they actually meet the challenges instead of someone who's just been told about the benefits all the time. So there's some high level, there's, there's, there's a few, we actually have 10 different, like for example, we, we use different titles. 
So you don't just put marketing manager, like go through whatever role you're hiring for, go through Seek and find all the other ads. And people tell me all the time, Brendan, Seek doesn't work. We've hired 99% of our roles through Seek from, from, from entry level graduates all the way up to like roles that someone's paying 300 grand for. And we, we do it all through Seek because the ads are so differently written that you get, we on average get um, two to three times more applicants that than, than any other Seek ad. And that's per our Seek stats that our account manager on Seek has shown us many times. Um, and that's because we use also catchy titles. So you've got to picture it kind of like a funnel. Like first they've got to click on the title. Then you want them to read it. Then you want them to, uh, to apply. So the way that you write the ad can also repel certain people. For example, I wrote an ad once for a general manager role and this is how I wrote it. For two founders, they're very hard to work with. They're control freak. You'll have to rip it out of their hands. You have to double the profit. Don't know if it's doable. Pretty long hours. Pay's okay. Um, that, literally, this is how I wrote it. And we had maybe only 20 candidates apply, but the quality of those candidates was so much higher. And one woman, she replied to the ad and she was like, this should be illegal. You should never write anything like that. And I'm like, well, it's true. So now you've just screened yourself out. Thank you very much. So you can repel certain candidates if you write it honestly. And one guy who applied was in a role for, he was like getting paid 500 grand a year working at the mines out and as a, as a business manager out in Perth. And he said, and one of the lines in there, I was like, you want a job like this because you're bored out of your brain and you want a challenge. And he's like, that's me. I'm so bored, Marty. It's like, please let me have this role. It sounds so exciting. <laughs> so you, you, you attract people where that role is actually like on it. You know, so a lot of people try and date. They, you know, when you when you go on a first date, everyone's got their best face on, and everyone's like, "Yeah, I'm like so reliable." You know, all the candidates when they're like, "You know, my floor is that I'm a perfectionist," <laughs> and you just got to kind of cut through all that and just be super honest and be like, "This role's tough. It's good pay. The, the company really cares about you, and you got to direct it to the archetype." And if you just do those things that I said, change the title, write it to an archetype. Um, and then get rid of anything in the ad that's just preferences, you're the type of can. Candidates that you get, you still need to screen them, but it, ad writing by far is one of our secret, like KFC chicken spices, whatever that saying is. The 11 herbs and spices. That's right, yeah. Ad writing is a huge part of it. What? What got you so passionate about this area? You spoke really <laughs> passionately and strongly earlier about the recruitment industry as a whole, and then you're, you're very, very passionate around what you're doing, which is absolutely awesome. It'd be great if all business owners were that. But often yeah. there's a there's a moment, there's an experience that it says, you know what, I'm just gonna I'm gonna change this. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something about it. Is there something there in the background for you? Yeah, yeah. So I have been my whole life. And I was doing consulting work for clients and then uh, they were having trouble with recruitment and I said, why don't I give it a go? And so I started doing it on evenings and weekends and it became basically a full-time job outside of hours. And I had a moment to myself where I was like, if I do this, because I didn't want to be a recruiter because I, I hated them, I, I, I like I, most of them. And um so there was a moment where I wrote this, I put up a business case and I took it to a friend of mine and he went to, we went to this cafe together and I was like, I'm thinking about doing recruitment. He's like, oh no, <laughs> he's like, don't do it. It's like saturated industry. It's like yuck. And then I was like, hold on a second, let me show you. And I showed him my process and he was like, you have to do it. And he helped me kind of, and he actually works for me now in my consulting firm, but he's been there from the start. He helped me name TalentX actually. He came up with the name, funnily enough. But I, there was a moment where I was like, if I don't do it, 
there's kind of a responsibility there where I'm like, it's actually unfair if I have this system. If I can find out a way to scale it, I don't have to run it because I don't really want to run it myself. And then my sister came along and it's like, she loves it and she's so good at it. And then we have a team now and she's in heaven. So it's, it kind of suits us both. So I kind of, it was just a moment where I was like, I actually think I should do this because I love business owners so much. So the thought of recruiters ripping them off makes me want to like punch someone, you know? So I, I, I'm just, I love business owners. And I, I, I know how hard they work and I know, I know what goes into building a business. And so when you just waste all this time and money, not only on recruiters, but the wrong staff, it's painful for me. So that's kind of where it came from. Thanks for sharing. So you're getting good quality candidates or you're attracting those that seem to be decent quality and, and matching to what you're putting out there. And a great example you shared, do, do you monitor or measure in the business, TalentX, anything about um, how successful you are in getting, let's say you mentioned 20, that you know, you've got 20 good quality candidates compared to the industry norm that might get 20, but there's only two or three. Like, Are you, are you tracking any of that? Yeah. So just as an overview of how our process works, we um, we advertise, so we get as many candidates as we can, so we have more options. About one to five percent of candidates pass our screening thereafter. That's not many, on average, on average. So it also depends role to role in industry, industry roughly. But um, as an average, we figured out between one to five percent of candidates pass our screening. So what happens then is we do a performance interview. So when we interview a candidate, we don't just ask them about their knowledge because people don't realize there's a big difference between knowledge and performance. People assume if you're knowledgeable and have experience that you're high performing. Two very different things. It's kind of like saying, well, I've been in sales my whole life and I have done the highest sales training ever and I've worked in these companies. I've been a sales manager. And you could sit here in an interview and be like, this person's going to be great. But when you actually ask about my performance in my sales role, I could have underachieved every single time that I've been given and still sound good to you because I talk about my knowledge. So knowledge is still needed, but it should be looked at separately. And so we look at knowledge, performance, and personality separately because people then assume Marnie's really nice, she's really funny, she's really lovely, she must be a high performer. No. So we keep getting confused and we feel like we've been bamboo. It's actually unfair on candidates because we just don't know how to tell the difference between performance, knowledge, and, and um, personality. So our process covers those bases. So we check knowledge separately to performance, separately to personality, and then we provide a report to a client that summarizes it with our suggestions. And we say, here's a candidate who could fit, here's what they look like, and then they decide if they want to um, interview them, and then we thoroughly ref check them. And that's the fourth thing. So we've got knowledge, performance, personality, ref checking. And our ref check process is so stringent. Uh, I have a friend who's... Um, Special Forces Army. He's got the second highest security clearance in the Army. And he was helping me with some stuff and got to know our process. And he was like, your process for reference checking is more stringent than mine whilst you're doing Special Forces. So we're, we're quite strict with cross-referencing because that's where it all falls apart. Like, because you can claim that you achieved your targets, but did you actually? That can only be checked through reference checking. We have a way of getting around feel-good, la-di-da references or the, their cousin or their boyfriend was on the phone and lied. Like, we have ways of getting around all of that. Um, the reason why I say all of that is um, you asked about candidates we put forward. We don't then aim for targets of candidates in terms of numbers to give forward. We just go, do they fit your criteria? Do they fit your necessities and preferences? We screen them. Here's a candidate. There you go. And often we get it on the first one or two candidates, which clients aren't used to because they're used to, guess what? Give me more to compare to. And we go, why? Why compare them? They meet everything you're asking for. What's it, you only need to compare when you've got these loose ideas with a resume, you've met someone, they feel kind of good, 
that the, the normal way of recruitment. You don't need to compare when you've got our process mm. because they either fit it or they don't. So it actually isn't, it's not really something that we target to try and get numbers up necessarily. Um, it's more so do they fit the criteria and have they passed our screening? Yeah. What comes to mind then is that it feels like you'd have to do an element of coaching with clients to <laughs> help them get clear on expectations. Can you talk to that a little bit? Because you seem to be nodding a lot about it. <laughs> Honestly, it's one of our biggest challenges because they're so used to the normal recruitment process. We have to constantly educate, re-educate them. And people just randomly insert steps in the process or include another manager and say, I want them to interview them now. And then one of the biggest problems with hiring is what we call a preconceived idea. So we bring our preconceived ideas into the hiring process. Like, for example, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. So you could have the best candidate. I had a client reject a candidate because they were too cheap. I'm not even kidding. Um, and then I've had people say, you know, I don't hire women with small dogs because I had two women with small dogs and they didn't work out well. And, oh, I only hire people who come from a background of blah. And you just insert all these ideas into what you think a good candidate is. And so we have to strip those back and challenge our clients all the time when they're like, they have to have blah. And I'm like, why do they have to have blah? Like what would someone work out in the role if they didn't? So what that also means is that we're actually so unbiased on who we hire. We're focused purely on do they pass the criteria that's needed to do the role well. So we don't look at age. We don't look at gender, religion. We don't look at names. You know how there's a big problem with people's native names or their, if they're from a different um, ethnicity background and they don't get considered, we, we, that we would never screen based on a name or a, or a resume for that matter. Um, so we have to constantly re-educate our clients. So that is a challenge because, yeah, we don't operate the same. The same. So we have to, that's, that's probably the biggest thing. And they, they bring in other managers in the process and they bring their ideas as well. Like they just didn't sell me in the interview. And I'm like, they didn't sell you in the interview? And I'm like, yeah, they didn't sell me in the interview. I'm like, well, how many people have sold you in the interview that didn't work out well? That's my first question. My second question is, what if they, what if a candidate got given an idea from a coach not to sell yourself in an interview because you don't want to come across to you know, arrogant. Like you have these weird ideas that also you got to keep in mind candidates have ideas about hiring too. I don't want to talk too much. Don't want to talk too little. My resume has to look like this. I have to like, they're also got their own stuff going on. So you just want to remove all of these like screens we put in front of a candidate and just get to the core of, have they proven in the past that they have performed in a role like this? Do they meet your knowledge expectations? And is their personality likely to be risky or not? And then you reference check all of it. And often reference checks, if someone's a little bit uneasy about a candidate, they're like, look, I like you, but I'm unsure. I'm like, ref because you either get, you feel so confident of the ref check that they're like, oh, they're like, I have one girl. She's not very charming. I'm about to hire her. She's not very charming. So on the phone, she comes across super dry. And most people wouldn't even look at her. And I love that. I love that I look at her when no one else does because I know she's a high performer. And we just had all the references checked. And every reference, double check, cross-referenced is like, she's incredible. She's a dark horse. She doesn't say much. But man, like she, she does what she's doing. She like researches when she doesn't know. She's like a go-getter. And they're people that would never be considered from a recruiter because they're not fancy. She doesn't interview well. Recruiters put forward candidates who interview well so that they'll get hired. Um, so I don't even know if I answered your question. I forget what it was. But yeah, it's important that we remove these, these ideas we put in front of a candidate. Yeah, you, the question was around coaching your clients. So you've smashed it out the park because these yeah. definitely... And, and going back to how you write or Talent X and, and yourself being a, a core, core part of that, writing your your advertisements and having various advertisements depending on the archetype requirements for the role um, is a, a such a simple thing but a stroke of genius. To be honest, it's, it's nothing that I've ever thought about before. Now, I've never been a recruiter. Um, I've employed 
a lot of people over the time, but I've never thought of that simple thing. Makes perfect sense. What I do spend a lot of time on is the when you say necessities versus preferences. Absolutely, I don't call them that, but it's so such a key thing setting expectations. So you're setting expectations about who you want to attract. Fantastic, but you're also setting expectations with the client around. Hey, this is what you guys are about recruitment wise. Even though we're you know, we don't want to be known as recruit, but we are recruiting people. But we're changing the game. We're trying to give a a good experience with recruitment, which is super important. You also just touched on too that I guess that phrase hire for attitude and train for skill. You mentioned earlier about you know an archetype could be a sales manager person who's experienced performing all those sort of things. You tick the personality, knowledge, and performance. But then there's also the other one that may not have had the credibility of the title, whatever that means, but they're doing it and stuff. Can you talk to that a little bit more? Like how do you how do you unpack that in your process? And also how would you coach a, a business to take that perspective of the opportunity they could be missing in not taking someone that's really doing the solid work and they're not worried about the title attached to it? Yeah, I think what you're looking for is um, you've got to think about what you want your candidate or your staff to be centered around. What are they? Are they, are they self-centric or group-centric? And so when you have a junior that you're willing to train, they become group-centric. They become career-centric. They're also cheaper. The hiring time is a lot quicker because you have way more applicants. For example, we put an ad up for our junior consultant role to do recruitment. They don't hire recruiters because I can't train out the bad knowledge out of them. So I have to train in you. And we had 450 applicants from our ad because it was a junior. We said, we're willing to train you. You're so, every role that you've had, you just smash the targets. You really want to build a career. You want a team where you're actually doing something. You want to help business people. You want to help staff find jobs. This is how we wrote the ad. Um, it's really tough, challenging. Like there's going to be times where you're going to work late. Other times you get to go home early or a small business, but we're just super honest. And we got 450 applicants. Now, the problem is that people I Did find include, don't. Sorry to interrupt. Did you include the backpacker archetype or not? <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> sorry, I had to ask. Continue. <laughs> um, um, I think the problem is that a lot of people are nervous around hiring juniors because they don't know how to check. So people, you got to you got to remember, people only check two things: knowledge based on a resume, which people can rely on, and their first impression personality, not their underneath personality. So if you have no way of checking that, of course, it's going to be more terrifying to hire a junior when you at least have a better chance that if someone's been in the role before, that I'm going to prefer them and I'm going to rather pay a little bit more. I don't have to bother around with them. But most most clients, I say to them, I'm like, look, if I, if I could give you someone who was actually a high performer, like a real natural, works really hard, learns really easily, super trustworthy and reliable, really wanted this career, but they didn't know as much. They go, of course, but you can't guarantee that. And I'm like, well, that's what my process does is I, I allow you to go, well, this is their personality. This is their um, performance track record and this is their ref- them reference check. So I actually understand when people are hesitant to do that and I don't blame them. But you've got to remember it's actually, it's actually a um, training is a hiring strategy. If you're good at training staff, it's a hiring strategy, especially for roles where the market's saturated for those type of candidates. But it puts you way ahead of your competitors. Like if you said to me now, um, Marnie, you've got to hire an extra 50 people this month, I could have hiring consultants up and running in two weeks because I've built a training program around that. And I know that when I hire them, they're likely to be high performers. Well, I have a 75% chance, which is a pretty good, pretty good odds for human beings because my hiring success rate is 75%, right? So I have a 75% chance that they are who I'm presenting them to be as a 
as a candidate. So I would just urge people to figure out, can I train this role? From which from which standpoint um, should should they be starting from? Like, could I get someone who's maybe just had one year and I could train them to compensate for only having one year? Maybe you normally ask for five. Um, but if, if, you're, if you're looking for a junior, you've got to more so focus on their past performance and their personality, their underneath personality, not their first impression personality. And then you'll feel more confident that they're worth the training. That's why people just go, well, what if I, what if I train them and they leave? you know and I'm like well what if you don't train them and they stay it's like that's just a part of the business you have to figure that out and but I also get it because you're you're putting a big risk when you're hiring people not many people pass a hiring process so I really understand the quality of candidates out there so it is a genuine issue and concern Although, again, you do have a pretty good guarantee around the stay, stay 12 months or more, exceed, exceed role expectations and good behaviour. So it's almost in, in some re- respect, okay, there's a lot of time in recruiting and, and if they're training and it doesn't quite work out, you sort of feel like you're going back to the back to the drawing board. But outside of that, it's a, it's a bit of a decent money-back guarantee, isn't it? So that, that's got to that's right. get people over the hurdle a little bit. Yeah. And I think that I think all recruiters should offer that. I think it should be guaranteed. If they don't work out, I'll replace them because you paid me to fill this role. I know. I think if you I think if you put that out there, you'd probably force the closure of many recruitment companies quite quickly if they had to guarantee that. Yeah. That well might that's, become an issue. That's my whole point, whereas I'm hoping that I like I would love to change what recruitment is because it's not accountable. So then they shouldn't be recruiters if they can't take responsibility for the candidates they place. This sounds so simple. When we think about it, that's insane what I just said. That's like saying a builder can guarantee to build you a house and they'll guarantee that it can stay up for a year. But if it doesn't stay up for longer than that, that's your problem. And I will endeavor to fix it if it falls apart. Like this is the way I view it and it's obviously not viewed that way. But uh, what else are you paying for? You're paying for someone to, for, to do the role. So do they do it? Yes or no? No, right. Then you've just paid me for nothing. If you pay me for nothing and they don't work out, I'm a criminal. I literally just took your money for nothing. That's criminal activity. That's the way that I view it. I don't have many recruiter friends. Let's just say that, Brendan. Well, let's just focus on you for one minute there again. I've got so many other questions, but you're a straight shooter. There's no doubt about that, which I really love and I think is fantastic in your line of work and that just the work we do with leaders, business owners. When has that got you into trouble? Just give me one example. So, no, don't give me lots of just one example. <laughs> oh, that's been with recruitment, not at all. Do you, no. do you know why? Because I think if all clients go, that makes sense. And then recruiters kind of shrink a little bit. Like, what, what can they say to that? Like, and, and I've, I'm inviting, I would love, I would love to be like, you know what my ideal is? Like, let's, let's like have a TV show where two recruitment firms, me and someone else, go up against each other. Like, man, I would lo- I'd love to be challenged. You love challenged like, don't you? Oh, yeah. I'm like, if you have a better process than me, if you have a better hiring process than me, if you have a better hiring success rate, man, I want to hear about it because I'm like sitting here going, am I the only one measuring it like this? I am. I've researched the internet, Brendan. I can't find any recruiter on the planet that measures their success rate the way that we do. So I'm kind of looking around going, really? This is a standard? And clients are paying up to 25% right now. 25% commission for, for no guarantee. It's just like, yeah. So if, funnily enough, no, I've not had any. I think only some challenges on Facebook from like ads that we did where they're like really snide comments like 
you, this is, you must be grasping at straws if this is what you're promoting. And then I research who they are and they're all recruited. <laughs> and anyone who ever commented like that, I'm like, that's really I was funny. Say, if they're coming on Facebook. Are they even uh, real people? Oh, they were recruiters. <laughs> and I found them and I was like, lol, recruiter. Uh, it, it also seems like to me that pe- people like you do change things. And, and all I need to do to motivate someone like you is to tell you you can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Educate X. I know we're not going to unpack that, but from what you said earlier too, it, it almost feels like in some respects, Educate X is a bit of a feeder club, talent club for talent X. Is that right? Is that how you've deliberately placed it? No. So Educate X is especially in management training and we, I do that. That's mainly for my old career. And I found that the main reason why I started Educate X is because I feel like unfairly a lot of managers are pushed into, staff are pushed into management roles or, or put their hand up for management roles. Um, but being good at a job doesn't mean you're good at getting others to be good at a job. And there's no standard of management in Australia. Not, there's, every time I do the training, I'm like, what's definition of management? It's always different. And then you put these people in a management role and expect them to perform well as a manager and then blame them if they don't, even though you haven't trained them. And so it's a bit of a messy, complicated um, area that isn't fair and and most managers don't know what to do. They're like, you get these concepts with leadership and management training where you're like, yeah, cool. That makes me feel good, I guess. But then you're like, yeah, but what do I say? Like tomorrow? <laughs> what do I say to them when they ask me this question? How do I handle this type of personality? How do I deal with that? And so I built like a toolkit that's super, I'm a practical gal, if you have noticed, but it's super like, you don't know what to do, use this tool. You don't know what to do. It's like very tit for tat and like, tra- not transactional, but specific. So I mainly did it like to help staff actually because I feel there's an unfair expectation on managers to be managers without ever being trained and I have even business owners 99% of business owners I've met have never had management training so it's mainly for um for poor managers because management is a really tough job especially for small business you're stuck between the founder we've got to do whatever they tell you to do and then you're stuck between the team and it's like you're a slave to these two entities and you've got to figure out how to do it without pissing anyone off and how do I not upset staff and how do I achieve KPIs and it's a really tough role and staff don't realize it until they're in it, how tough management is. So I, I just empathize with them. And so I, I was like, you know, I, I wanted to, I actually want to set the standard of what management is in Australia. That would be my dream. Like if you're a manager, it's like, oh, you haven't done educatics training, you're not a manager. You know what I mean? Like, or, you know, you've been certified as a manager of educatics. That would be my goal. Yeah, well, good luck with that. It's, there's certainly different expectations around management, leadership, whatever that is, which we deal with every day. As far as myself and the work that I do with clients, I, I operate on a leadership to me is about people developing their character, building their competence and creating connection around the people side and coaching and that sort of stuff. I do, I do, I really like what you've said about personality, knowledge versus performance. And I'll just reference check important, but I'm just going to put that to the side at the moment because I'm loosely linking knowledge to some extent with how I look at character around people and developing character. I, I can see a stronger link with competence, with performance, absolutely, and I see a stronger link with connection around personality and personality styles and stuff like that. So let's start with knowledge from your side. How do you – give us a bit more insight into how you uncover, get under the hood of candidates. From my side, it's, you know, are they, are they developing character of good character? A lot of self-awareness sits into that piece as well. Tell us a bit more about how you uncover this knowledge piece with people and, and a fit, even in relation to the behavioral side of things. Yeah. So knowledge is looked at in comparison to the necessities that are set for the role. 
So let's just say I wanted um, a BDM who's used Salesforce. They have to be very good at it because they're using it every day. They have to have known a specific sales system and they have to have had experience. I put knowledge and experience somewhat similarly. Um, maybe it could be knowledge about um, pro- professional-based selling, not product. So maybe you want knowledge in that area for a salesperson. Um, and then what we do is we create custom questions that would answer that. And we find ways of, by the way, when, when we're doing that, we, we don't necessarily take it with a grain of salt, but that has to be checked. So we're, we're just going, what are you claiming how good you are against this criteria? So we go Salesforce. How would you rate yourself out of 10 with Salesforce? Oh, I've used Salesforce. Like, I'm so good at Salesforce. I'd rate myself 10 out of 10. So then we put it in there, 10 out of 10. He, cl- he claims or she claims 10 out of 10. What about this? What about that? And we, we cross-reference that. And then we ref check it. Ref checking seals any claim. If you don't get it ref checked, consider it unconfirmed. So it's, it's dubious. If it hasn't been ref checked, it doesn't actually mean anything when you think about it. Like, it's just what someone said. So we, we obviously we don't give that impression when we're interviewing them. We're, we don't, we don't, you know, show suspicion, but we just basically get all their, get all their information. And then if they get to the point of ref check, checking, we actually end up interviewing the reference the exact same way we interview the candidate. So we ask the same questions. What were their targets? What did they achieve? Um, they, did, they, did they know Salesforce? We even ask because they say, no, they never use Salesforce. Uh-huh. So they, they lied. You can catch them out by asking. You don't give them the answer. You don't say they said that they got a hundred grand target. You say, what was their target? Their target was 150. What did they get? Oh, they got, a, they got about, you know, 130. That's interesting. They said that they got 200. So you, you, have to, you have to catch them out in things. So that's how we confirm knowledge. But then we also suggest in some cases, depending on the role, that the client does a knowledge check. And the knowledge is actually the area of, of recruiting that we're the least um, detailed in because we are not industry specific and we're not role specific. So we can't be the expert in every industry. So we kind of put that on the client a little bit to say, look, we can confirm that they're not, they're very likely not to be a toxic personality. They seem to be a really good high performer. We haven't ref checked yet because you haven't met them, but can you please check these knowledge points? Because we don't know if they're good at CAD drawings. We don't know. Well, they want, you know, we don't deal with that. So we also put some of the owners, depending on the role of knowledge, on the client. Because also that's, by the way, what they're used to checking anyway. Like that's what they're good at with hiring. Normally knowledge is all they check. So we kind of put that on them a little bit. It makes sense, but you can, as a, a business that you're running, I'm trying to not use the word recruiter, talent X, you can look for signs of developing knowledge. How do you, how do, you do that? Well, this is the catch, right? That's only dependent on if the necessities allow it. Because we're working for the client, right? So if you said to me, I'm okay with someone who, who has never used Salesforce and I'll train them, right? Then, then we wouldn't even ask that question. We might ask it, but we're not going to reject them based off that. So we always push, always push the client to um, choose candidates that are more proven to be productive, have a good personality because then, then they're likely, they're going to do, if someone's done well in every role they've had, no matter what the role is, it's very likely they're going to do well in other roles. If someone's done terrible in other roles, and we can confirm that because they, they can't give any KPIs or they, they can't confirm that they've achieved anything, they're going to be good despite their knowledge. So we actually, I'm a huge advocate for not focusing on knowledge and experience, which is also the way everyone else hires. You actually end up attracting candidates that aren't fancy on the outside because they're not trained to be like that because that's how everyone else wants them to be, if that makes sense. Like everyone's looking for these things. So if you find someone that, look, I'm just really good at getting and achieving this and achieving that. And you have to cross-reference it, obviously. But we have huge advocates for training people and upskilling them because 
you can train knowledge. You can't train performance. And this is a very controversial idea that I give forth in my management training where I'm like, you should never have to motivate or, or influence or persuade someone to perform ever. You can make them more of a high performer. If someone's naturally a high performer, you can help them by making them more, but you can't turn someone who's a three out of 10 performance into a nine out of 10. I've never seen that in my whole career. I've had many people argue, like I used to do strategy days for clients. I work with hundreds of companies and every time, every single time, I've never seen a three out of 10 go to an eight out of 10, but I've seen an eight get to a nine. So that's just me and my personal, like you can't train that. So I'm a big advocate for that, big, big advocate for, for training people and upskilling them. Yeah, look, I doing what I do, I couldn't be an advocate for. Well, I I would have to be an advocate that, for that as well. With, I guess what you're saying is that knowledge. There can be a lot of knowledgeable people around stuff, and it's easy to attain knowledge now. Really, you know, internet's a you know, first point of call, or even chat GPT, things like that. But turning that knowledge into real action is what you're saying. Actual performance, is that right? <laughs> Spot on. I'll give you a classic example, right? I had a client and he would have been so good on paper. He worked in the mining industry, would have been so good on paper that he would have gotten a job within a day of being on the market, right? So he had experience. I think he had like 35 years experience running um, mining companies. Um, he knew he was an engineer, these other um, uh, knowledge points. But when I was working with him, he actually wasn't my client. His, his boss was. Uh, he was, the company was losing since he got on board, the company was losing, I think 500 grand a week from his low performance of managing it. So everyone will agree if they're listening to this, like you can have someone that looks knowledgeable if he's a really low performer. You can have someone who's a really high performer who's got a terrible personality. There are some salespeople like that. They're really high performing, but they're kind of assholes. Or you have someone who's super lovely that you would never want to fire, but they're low performing. So you really got to separate these points and people keep crossing them over. Lani's nice equals she'll be good. I'm sorry. Just because I'm nice doesn't mean... I want to be good at that role. So you just got to... It's, it, but it's still valid. I'm not negating knowledge, but people just get so swept up in it. You worked here. Oh, you did that for 10 years. So what's years got to do with it? It's very easy to hide in certain companies and it's very easy to, to underperform. So... Yeah, that, that's the biggest difference I can draw is, is, is it's kind of like asking a soccer player, what roles do you know? How many games have you played? What countries have you played? And you could answer those three questions really impressively. And then I'm like, well, what goals did you score? And they're like, well, none. What goals did you score the season before that? What goals did you score in comparison to other players? And they can perform terribly, but have the best, most impressive resume ever. Yeah. That so resonates. I've got a background in football and so we're, <laughs> okay. all, we're all a bit of armchair critics around <laughs> sport at times, aren't we? We've never played the game or something. But yeah. anyway, um, the, the other thing that sort of is ringing my ears, an, an old mentor of mine many, many years ago, he said, Brendan, always be careful of the person who says, you know, I've got this years of experience, 35 years experience, because often it's actually not 35 years experience, it's one year experience repeated 35 times. <laughs> I like that. I like that. It has always stuck with me. Yeah, I, I like that. There is, like your uh, statistics with getting and attracting good people, um, there's pretty good result on that. Now, often when people are spruiking that, there's there's a reason why they're spruiking it. Um, no, they I don't like always it. believe it themselves. Um, performance, and it, this, this seems maybe it's not a daft question. No question is daft, but it seems like the performance side can be black and white. But tell me and for our watchers and listeners, our audience, how do you – screen for performance what's what's involved there 
Yep. So um, it's very simple. You are basically asking what were you tasked with achieving versus how did you go about getting that and what did you achieve? Now that can be challenging because what if it's a receptionist? Like a salesperson is very easy to do that with because you can just say, what were your KPIs? Did you achieve them? Um, but then you want to work on deadlines. So, or you want to, you want to, you want to be on the spot, clever and figuring out how, how could you compare to something? So you could even ask, okay, how did you compare to the person in the role before you? What would your boss say about that? You could ask, um, any, any achievements that you're proud of, any, any improvement you made in the company that has made some sort of improvement. So for example, someone said, um, oh, I improved, um, a system company. Like I implemented a, a system. Now that sounds good, but is it good? Like you could improve a system and it was unneeded. So then I ask. Okay, well, what effect did that have? Well, it saved us time. Cool. And you have to dig. It saved you time. Cool. How much time? Well, it saved me on average 10 hours a week. Okay. Did it save anyone else time? Yeah. My staff on average 10 hours a week. How many of you are there? There's five. That's 50 hours. That's a whole wage. Would you agree with that? He's like, yes. I'm like, okay, what's the average wage value? Oh, about about 35 an hour. So I times 35 by 50 hours. So I'm like, so you saved X dollars in direct wages a week. He's like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Now that's also reference checkable. You could go and, and double check that. So people aren't used to talking like this because no one asks questions like this. So you have to kind of really be on this. You have to be clever and dig, but you're, you're essentially asking achievements, outcomes you're proud of. If I called your boss, what would they say about you? Did you ever go against a deadline? What, 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 um, what were you tasked with? What did you achieve and how did you compare with other people? Those gives you reference points on, because someone could also sound high performing. Well, I got a sales target of hundred grand and I got 150. Okay. But like, what did other people get? Well, they all got 152. Well, now I was thinking you were like a nine out of 10, but really more like an eight, which is still good. You, you, you got, that's still good, but you, it's all in comparison to other data. So you've got to look at it in comparison to other things. And it's, it's super hard for me to give you specifics because every role's quite different, but the questions are kind of the same. And you just got to be on the ball with not, not getting impressed and so quickly and going, actually, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean by how much, by what volume, by what percentage? So you've got to kind of really dig a little bit. Yeah. The challenge I see with that, not from your side, because it sounds like you, you again, lots of experience and your background in management consulting, so good at asking good questions. But one of the challenges, and this is where I, I do spend quite a bit of work actually, is that there's so, there's so much lack of conversation in, let's say, boss, leader, manager, whatever you want to call them, versus person reporting to them. And what boss thinks is great performance and what this person thinks is great performance is different. And that, that's the miscommunication breakdown. So, And then I just wonder, do, do you see any of that play out through a reference check that they might, you might be speaking to a previous boss? Well, they're saying, the boss is saying, oh, it's not as good as what we wanted because they just didn't take the time to clarify what great looks like for the role. So it's, you know, there's different levers here. How yeah, do you deal and with- sometimes, sometimes you get candidates who are like, I, I got no KPI. I've never been given KPI. But I go, then I ask this question, how do you know if you're good at your job or not? And they go, well, my boss has sent me an email and said I was the best stuff memories ever had. My boss, my boss actually gave me three more um, juniors and no one's ever had this many juniors before. Well, actually, like they actually don't realize that they, there are things that actually, if you can't answer that question, how do you know if you're good at your job or not? But also when you reference check, it actually is objective because it's, it, especially if you get these tangible things, because then I can go to the boss and say, um, what, how do you know if they're good at their job or not? Like, oh, I've never seen anyone manage that many people before. Okay, good. So how many more people have they managed compared to everyone else? Double.
Would you say they double as good? I guess so. So it actually, when you when you become super factual, I'm not asking your opinion on. I'm asking factually, what did they achieve and how did they go? Not necessarily how do they go about doing it. By the way, I actually don't get into that too much. It's more so what did they achieve because. As long as they can prove they got it, then they're the type of people that would push through barriers to get something done. And that's what you want. You want someone who can push through barriers or, or um, obstacles to get an out, give up. And so really, if you just focus on that, otherwise they, they can talk for an hour about how they did it and what they worked on. I don't really care because you can work on something and not get an outcome. So I'm only interested in talking about the outcomes. And those are actually very easily objectively, objectively cross-referenced. Yeah. Uh, respectfully, it's it's almost like you're the you're the pit bull, right? And this is what <laughs> leadership or people in leadership roles aren't doing enough of. They're sort of taking things at face value. But already in how you're talking, I can see enormous value in what you do. And I don't even know what investment it is for your services. But you're asking these questions that people are aren't asking. They're just taking the glossy approach as the thing. They're not getting into the detail. And and particularly when I know when they get to a, an interview stage with leaders interviewing people, yeah, they're not experiencing that as well. So they sort of take it on face value and they, they don't really know what they're looking for. Um, so I guess, again, going back to that point about coaching, I think this is where you're probably spending a lot of time, as you said, coaching your clients to, this is where we need to get to. This is where we need to find out more about. If we do that, then there's just much a, a much higher chance of success, again, which is what your stats show. Yeah. And then also I'll say um, candidates love it. High-performing candidates are like, no one's ever asked me this because I also train my staff. If someone expresses an achievement, you have to validate it. Achievement goes unacknowledged. You know what goes acknowledged? Your personality, your knowledge, um, your knowledge and your um, experience. That's what goes acknowledged. Wow, I'm so impressed. You worked at so-and-so company and you had this title. Like, I don't care. I'm like, you got you you saved $1,000. I never thought of it that way. I'm like, really well done. That sounds like hard work. I'm like, Thank you. No one's ever said that to me. Like, especially so, then start falling in love with the role. This is where it gets interesting, Brendan. High performers and go, well, this company's different because Talent X. Obviously, they know it's a recruitment firm. If they've hired Talent X and they value this, I'm likely to be recognised here because guess what? People like that have been overpassed by someone who's more charming or who can negotiate a better pay or who you know looks better or interviews better, and they often performers aren't aren't acknowledged as much as they should be. So we make a note of that. So also candidates who are high performing absolutely love it and i have i reckon because this is another thing this is not something i like to necessarily promote so much but we have a little game where we try and make back what we charge our client in fees by negotiating pay that's fair we want it to be fair for the candidate but if i'm like if this is their dream job and i know we also love our clients we we're very picky with our clients we five clients if we don't like them because they're not good enough employees like we claim all these staff are hard to get but then some employees don't think do you know how many bad employees there are out there do you know how many there are who don't give you expectations and hold you to this and they don't do that and they don't like so it's, there's a fair playing ground here on that is, is my point but you know so I um I make sure that if if someone if this is their dream job and I've got this amazing client and I love this I'm like dude you have no idea how lucky you are to have this they are absolutely this guy would bend over backwards if you if you are who what you say you are I think you'll be very happy here and it's like so look the role I know that you want eighty. Are you willing to do 75 for the first six months to see if we can figure this out? And, you know, to do, and they're, they're like, yep, yeah, no problem. Because they've fallen in love with the role. They fall in love with the idea of it. They know that this is different. They feel recognized. And we often make back a portion of our fee through negotiating pay with, with candidates. You mentioned how um, you fire clients or have fired clients, which is always a good approach to take if it's not the fit. When has a client fired you guys, Talent X? <laughs> um, good question. 
we've been fired. I wouldn't say fired. We come to mutual agreements if we find that, for example, we start with a role, we define necessities, we start bringing candidates that meet those necessities, and then the necessities change. And they're like, well, no, I wanted five years experience. I'm like, yeah, but you said you, you were okay with three. And they're like, yeah, but now I've changed my mind. I want five. Or, you know, it, so sometimes it's about things like that. We've never had an instance where like the client was so unhappy where they're like, you guys are terrible and I'm firing. It's never been like that. It's also a mutual thing where we're like, look, you, you're either not following our process. They're like, yeah, this is not what I thought it was. It's un- this is not in alignment with how I want to hire. And I'm like, no problem. Like our process is not normal. So some clients don't, very rare, it's maybe happened a handful of times, but they just politely go, this is, this is not for me. And I'm like, no problem because we, we don't allow them to stray from the process. Basically, if, if you don't, if you don't do it our way, then we're not doing it because we're not like high, higher in your own way. Do you know what I mean? So it's more so a polite, this is not working out for me, um, type approach. Yeah. When we talked about performance before, again, you're getting into the, the nitty gritty and really getting some key measurables there, which is fantastic. And I guess to uh, to lead into personality, how does that help uncover and get under the hood for the, the, the charmers out there, both male and female, that are very, very charming, but it's not always as it seems? Oh, yeah. So we have a personality profile that we use. It's about 90% accurate. So if I did an evaluation of your profile, maybe one in every 10 points, you'd be like, close, but not quite so close. Um, candidates find it so, so, so accurate when we go through it. Um, I can tell if you're the type that finished your homework the night before. I can tell if you're the type that um, when you're grumpy, you don't talk. I can tell if you're the type that you care about your appearance. And, you know, there's different traits that it assesses, but the key value with it, despite all that fun stuff, is it's separated into an outward personality, which is rapport, communication, and energy. So if I'm really energetic in an interview and I've got really high rapport and I'm a great communicator, that's the outward personality. And then your underneath personality, which is your um, your self-control, your self-confidence, your enthusiasm, and your tolerance. So you can have someone who has really high energy, really high rapport, really high communication that you're just, and I can tell straight away within a microsecond, I look at a graph, I'm like, that person will interview one. That person will get job offers from interviews alone. But then you have people, what you want is a profile that has really high outward personality and really high underneath personality. But you often have the opposite. You have really high outward personality, really low inward personality. So we can tell we have a specific type of personality profile called a snake in the grass profile where you get someone who's like, you know, like, I don't know if you've seen Mean Girls, Regina George, but she's like, oh my God, I love your bracelet. Where did you get it? And she's like, that's the ugliest effing bracelet I've ever seen. Like people that actively are against what they portray and we can spot that. So there are times where we'll see that profile and we'll be like, eh. and because we also do team audits, by the way, we audit our company staff and we do that. Very important to us to do that if we're going to start a long-term relationship with them, because I need to know who you are, what your weaknesses are. Because then if, for example, if you're a disorganized company, I want to put that in the role. I want to be like, this, this role's unorganized. You've got to organize it. And then you'll get the right candidates. Like, oh, I love organizing things. Yes, I want this role. So we also do team audits to make sure that we understand who our clients are. We fired people like we ask 45 different questions of staff and then we get averages. So one client had 100% of staff labeled the GM as toxic. 100% of the staff labeled the GM as toxic. I'm not hiring for them. I can't hire for them if the GM's toxic. No way. Sorry. Bye. So we, we assess um, also personality in that. And we, there's times where we're like, this person has a snake in the grass profile. And, the, and then the owner's like, actually, you know what? That's really interesting because blah happened, blah happened, blah happened, blah happened. It's only ever when they're involved in the project. We're like, yeah. So we don't necessarily advise them to fire people. We just provide an information of what's underneath that. And that's why this profile is so great because there are other profiles that are good and they are accurate, 
but not many of them show show it because we have green traits, which are outward, and blue traits, which are inward. So it shows green traits and blue traits, and are they matching up or not? And so it actually shows your underneath personality, and that's how we get under the hood of whether or not they're what we would call toxic or might be toxic. Yeah, I like it. Snake in the grass sounds very cool phrase, not something that I guess you want to wear with a badge of honor. But it may not be the snake in the grass type person, but has there been scenario or scenarios that you could share where somebody who maybe doesn't look like the ideal candidate, so you've repelled them, let's say, to use some of that language you guys use, and but they've actually turned out to be pretty good somewhere else? Yeah, so we actually don't, we don't necessarily um, reject candidates on personality for one reason. The personality profile shows you what their native personality is, which some people have learned to push aside their personality at work. Some people have learned how to do that. So we actually focus on performance above everything else, above everything else. If they're high performing, then they can, and then we reference check key personality things to be like, did they ever cause problems? Did they ever find this? And then they're like, no. Then you're like, okay, cool. They're the type of person that most of the time, if they don't have something big going on in their lives, they're likely to put aside their native urges. Like for example, I had a candidate yesterday, I was doing an evaluation on, I was going through his profile with him. And I was like, you start a lot more than you finish. He's like, what do you mean? I'm like, do you have like a gardening project that you started? Did you, did you start to play the guitar and then you put it down? Did you? He's like, oh my God, that's me. And I'm like, right. I was like, are you like that at work? He's like, no, that's, but I ask for deadlines. I need deadlines because if I don't have deadlines, I won't do it. And I'm like, yes, I know that. So now I know how to counteract that nat- native trait in him and manage him better. So it's not this blanket thing of like, do they, it's interesting because you can override your personality at work. Some people are built that way where they're like, nope, I don't get into my personal life at work and that's a good thing. So to answer your question, there are people who have a profile that maybe is not is a bit risky, but they've worked out really well because they're high performing and they've found a way to overcome that personality. And whether or not candidates worked out in a separate company that we have rejected, I don't really know because I don't go and track and check and go, hey, we we rejected this candidate a year ago. Are they going well? Um, and it's all about risk. It's not about guarantee. That's also the key is we're just minimizing risk. We're going there is a high chance this person's like that. I'm not guaranteeing they're like that. It's just a really high chance. And so that's where we kind of, you're just minimizing your chances of, of like, do you want to risk that this person has like a pretty high chance of being problematic? Do you want to risk it for a HR manager role? That's a pretty important role where they're dealing with people. Is that worth it? Or would you rather risk it maybe for a customer service? Maybe you're okay with that. Or, you know, receptionist, you're actually like, nah, you know what? I'm willing to risk it. So it's more so about risk aversion than it is about guarantees or being super, super like, certain that that they are that way speaking risk and let's link it to reference checking there does seem to be a common more common scenario where businesses aren't wanting or even allowing through their policies for employers uh, employees to provide reference checks outside of yes they worked here for x amount of time and this is the role they did how do you are you finding that and if so how do you get around that given reference checks is such an important part of the puzzle. Yeah, well, ironically, people don't think reference checks are important, which is, it's just because, it's just, actually, I think people who say that just don't do it right, because if you did them right, you would never, ever, ever hire anyone doing them. Um, mm. But what I will say on that is that that might be more relevant in corporates. It's not as relevant in SMEs. So we work with mainly small to medium companies. We don't do corporate. I'm not interested in corporate um, for many reasons. But um that would be more so, I think, a symptom. We have hit it a few times, but we find ways of getting around it. Sometimes we can't check things. Sometimes, it, you know, the business closed or they, no one ever replied after 50 calls. 
And then we just put that in the report. We say, look, we've out of four roles that we checked, by the way, we don't just check one, we check more. Um, out of all these roles that we've checked, one we can't confirm. I'm not going to say that they passed because they, I can't confirm it, but so far based on all the others, I think it's okay. And we might put forward sometimes a gut feeling, whereas sometimes when things aren't working, like when you start reference checking and it starts getting complicated and everything's like gets messy, you just, you just, it's, it's a really big red flag. It's a really big red flag when you go to, when reference checking isn't easy. And normally it's not, it's created by that, by the candidate. They kind of make it a little bit complicated. And, um, we get around all of the, um, the lying and all of the like fake references by getting our candidates to sign a reference check agreement. So we actually get them to sign an agreement that says you can check any unnominated reference. You can check anything on my resume. So if someone puts down a reference from their current role and they've been there for a year and they don't put down the role that they're in for five years, guess who we call first? The five-year one. So most candidates don't read that. They don't read the agreement. Like I had one guy who signed it. He didn't read it. And then I'm like, hey, I called your boss from so-and-so. And he's like, I didn't give him his reference. I'm like, I know, but it's in your agreement. He's like, what? I'm like, it's in your agreement. He's like, I didn't read it. I'm like, oh, my darling, well, you should probably read what you signed. <laughs> I was being genuine. I was like, a little bit of advice. You should probably read that. And he's like, oh, what do they say? I'm like, they said that you that you didn't achieve any of your targets not once. And he's like, yeah, that that's true. He's like, that's why I didn't put them down. I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like, it was just such a sweet, you know, accurate, like, like honest conversation. I said, well, yeah. he's like, I didn't get the job, do I? I was like, no, my honey, you don't get the job, but I wish you the best of luck. But he was a great candidate. He had all the knowledge. His resume was beautiful. He had a good personality profile, but none of that matters unless what is expected of them. Would you rather someone who was a little bit more like, awkward in the office but is a high achiever or would you rather someone who's the most charming amazing person ever and they can't achieve anything so it's it's, it's a good process but that that rush check agreement and then also you get this as well brendan what if someone doesn't want to sign it is that not a red flag why don't you want me to sign it now in saying that mm. in saying that there are times where they say look because you can say in the ref check agreement it says if you don't want us to call anyone let us know but if you don't tell us not to call them we'll call them so we respect their wishes if they say don't call my car boss because he doesn't know i'm leaving Sure, we're not going to call them. We're not going to break your trust. But we then, like, I'm working with a candidate right now, and she's like, I don't want to put my current boss because we aren't getting along. And I was like, okay, I need a way to check your current role. So you have to work with me here. And so she's been working with me to find reports that were emailed to her that prove that she achieved her target. I'm not going to make her let me talk to the boss, but I'm like, it's your actual responsibility as a candidate to prove what you claim. It is not my job. It's your job. If you claim this, you have to prove it. That's on, that's on you, not me. And when candidates work on it, like when candidates are good candidates, like, yeah, I'll help you. Whereas you get other candidates are like, I can't believe you would ask me of this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, this sounds like a body red flag. So um, all the best and go find another role. So that's kind of how we get around it. That reference check agreement is absolutely key. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. <laughs> and I love your red flag is often a term I use. Is In my experience, again, both personally and working with many clients around this sort of stuff is that there's always a red flag or red flags. They just often, and again, I'm, I'm dealing in the SME space as well. So, you know, they're that caught up in the past experiences, that caught up in, well, I've got to get someone, I've got to get someone. So there's this pressure added to the whole process, which is a process they're not really great at and they haven't documented or anything like that. So they just, the red flags in hindsight are clear as, but they're just, the blinkers are on. Yeah. It's why I actually use a term with, Again, people that I, I work with specifically, but just generally, it's like I found when people don't know or that maybe they they aren't reaching out to businesses like yours to support, the best recruitment happens when you're not recruiting. 
So you're just there. You, you know that your business is growing. You know that you're going to be looking for people and you're just interacting with people, right, right. either suppliers or contractors or whatever they are. And it's yeah. amazing that what happens. And then you start to throw some thoughts into their head and say, well, you know, who have you dealt with over time that you really think is a great operator and stuff like that? And it's amazing the times that we've created opportunities for people through good people because they've just interacted over a period of time when no one was looking for jobs and trying yeah. to impress. It just sort of happened. Has that, have you had those sort of experiences as well? We have, we have, but we still put them through our screening. So we had a time. Absolutely makes I, sense. I will, yeah. I will say one thing on what you just said. You said, um, um, it reminded me that we have a policy where anyone who does the hiring project can't do their own ref checking because you fall in love with the candidate. And by then, you you know, you spent hours, you've screened out 50 people, you finally found someone who's good enough. You don't want to call and know. You don't, you just want to be like, so they're not a psychopath. Okay, great. Thank you. Bye. Like, you don't want to know all the red flags and how much they're lying. You want the role filled. So we have a rule that if one of our girls does, because I only, only have women in that team at, at the moment. Um, one of our girls does a hiring project, they're not allowed to ref check themselves. It's a firm policy and I believe all companies should do that because you're so biased and want them to work out. Um, yeah, I had a guy at this um, plant shop, Maddie and I were buying plants and we got along with him really well and he was a young, young boy and I asked him, you know, what do you want to, he was like, who are you guys when Maddie and I together were a bit crazy? So he's like, who are you two? <laughs> he's like, you like, you like, you look like you're on a TV show. <laughs> and I, we're like, oh, we're recruiters. And he's like, oh yeah, I want to be a lawyer. And I'm like, okay. And he was so sweet. I introduced him to my lawyer client. He's been there for like two and a half years now. He like absolutely loves him. And he's a junior junior lawyer. And he, you know, so it's just a freak thing where you meet someone. I, like, I love that. But they also do have to pass it. He did pass it. But yeah, it's lovely when you get those those beautiful, um, not trying, no no front personality. You know, you don't have that that social veneer on. It, it's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. The I've got a short story around reference checking and what reinforced the importance of this, thankfully, very, very early in my corporate experience. But um, a lady who was in my team, I was leading, managing her, and ultimately, we needed to, I needed to get her out of the business. It wasn't, wasn't the right fit at all. She'd been with the business quite a long time, but that, that progressed successfully, which was great. And She, I had she a, left, you mean? She left of yeah. her own accord, but we needed to sort of move her out. That was what we were trying to make happen. The What happened was that not long after that, I received a call from a client that for the, of the company I was working for, but it was also a friend. So she reached out to me and said, oh, we've had such and such um, interview and she's fantastic. She's like the, in your words, you know, the, the knowledge is fantastic. Um, performance, well, that was uh, some conversation that happened. And also... Brendan, the reference checks we've done have, have checked out. One of them in particular was absolutely awesome. And what it turned out, and th this lady, knowledge-wise, was awesome. Her personality, behaviors, performance, a whole different story. And there was some um, alcohol stuff involved in that as well. But the reference check, one of the reference checks she gave was her partner, who was a different name, who gave her an absolutely glowing reference check. And yeah. what I just said to this person was that, Look, if that's what's happened, this is what's happened. Tell me, you know, who's the name of the person? They gave me the name, and I said, I said nothing else, but that tells you the quality of the person you're dealing with. But on. game over. But on, <laughs> no, but on. And I have countless. I have people who've made fake websites, fake ABNs, um, fake LinkedIn pages, um, completely false resumes. And this is the other thing. I have access to the back end of Seek, so I can see different versions of resumes that they've put up. And I'm like. So we check that too, where I'm like, hey, 
in your last resume last year, you said you were here for a year and a half and now you're saying you're there for two. So what's going on? You know, we cross-reference so many different things. So if they give, if she gave, this is how we would have caught her out. If she gave a number, which was her husband, um, and we would have called him and maybe he confirmed everything, but we don't give him the answer. So he would have to have known all of her answers instinctively because we don't provide them. He would have to just be good at giving them. But then we have to check that the number's real. So we would call the company that they're claiming to be from and be like, was her manager Bob? It's like, yeah, her manager's Bob. What's his number? Like, we can't give your number out. So we cross-reference and find out. We, we check them out because we don't, we, don't, we don't trust any mobile number unless it's confirmed by the company, by the company that they work for. So this is all, my girls have to do all these runnings back and forth and up and down. Like, you, we don't just call someone and go, oh, cool, thanks. Because you get this all the time. Cousins, friends, you get, you get it all the time. It's so common, which is why people don't bother reference checking, Brendan. They think, well, it's all a lie. Why bother? So they just don't even, mm. even they, most, most people, I'd say 80% of people don't ref check. 80%. Wow. When one in three people don't pass our ref check, even after our screening, one in three people don't pass. So you have a 30% chance, a one in three chance that even after all of our screening, which I know no one screens like we do, so it'd be even higher if we did no screening, um, still one in three don't make it. So that's enough odds for me. That's enough odds for me to do it. Mm. Yeah, definitely. A, a super important part of the process. There's no doubt about it all. The we're going to start to close this out a bit, but are, are there any sort of well-regarded leaders you can say that maybe wouldn't pass the talent X process? Because there are going back to your point about management and that there's different levels and expectations around that. There's certainly different uh, levels and, and competence around leadership as well. You got any insight there? Um, <laughs> look, there's probably a few, I don't know. I don't, not necessarily. I mean, most people find out too late. Most people find out later. And I, what I love about our process is we, we do prevent you finding out the hard way. And so there are people that probably I would have caught things that no one else would have caught. And we have caught some people in some pretty incredible things like um and we've prevented a lot of disasters like a lot like we had a general manager we put forward we put we gave her an offer she signed pending ref checks and then the ref checks came back the last three roles said she was toxic and so that was a 25 grand job brendan i could have invoiced that day for twenty five thousand dollars. just told the client she'll be fine just put just just said nothing kept the sign agreement and I had to call the client and say, this is what I found. And then, I, and then she's like, I don't want to tell her. Like, that's horrible. I don't, want to, I don't want to reject her. I'm like, I'll do it. So I had to call this poor girl on a Friday afternoon. Oh, my gosh. And I like, like talking myself up. I'm like, come on, money. Don't be a little bitch. Like, you know, I'm like, call her. So I have to like call her and be like, you didn't pass ref checks. I'm sorry. And this, and she, you know, and she was great on paper. She was, she was lively. She was active. But her other, they're like, look, she's good for the company, but staff hate her. And every time there was four different roles that we checked, I ended up checking four. And every one of them was like, she's great with us, but she's terrible with staff. And she was hiring for a GM role. So I'm like, so you, you, we prevented, what, what bullet did we prevent for that company? So it's pretty much, a, we're gatekeepers and we were so protective of our clients. Like, well, you're not allowed in here. Prove it, prove it. What are you going to bring to this? Like, we're so protective of our, of our clients that it's, it's, it's very much a preventative action. And I'm sure that protection has created some very, healthy long-term relationships that you've got with clients as well. So uh, well well done on what you're doing and the commitment to stay true to what you're about and 
and all those sorts of things. It's just not those short-term decisions falling the other way. It's just not worth the long-term sort of hit on branding, hit on hit on character, those sorts of things, is it? No. Marnie, what's one thing that you can think about that's made you a more confident leader? Um, my own success rate. I All my confidence comes from objective, confirmed outcomes. Otherwise, I have no right to say anything on that thing. You know, like if I can't, I have no right to talk badly about any recruiter unless I have recruitment stats. So I find as leaders, we tend to go on confidence. We, we obtain confidence from all these other areas. But if you have results that are tangible and you can prove it, that confidence can't be beat. And, and I think it's something that people should focus on more. Some people should ask themselves, what are my achievements? Because not, not a lot of people are good at recording them themselves. And that should give you enough confidence that you know what you're doing because we get, we get um, impressed by all these other ideas. Say you've run a business before and then you hire me and I'm a Harvard graduate and you think Marnie's Harvard and I come in, I'm like, Brendan, what are you doing here? Change all of it. And you're going, well, Marnie might know better and I am paying her a lot of money and she is from Harvard. So maybe I should listen to her. And you put aside your own success and then you find out, oh, you were right the whole damn time. But do you know why you knew you were right? Because you got the first success in the first place. So people put way too much emphasis on anything else that isn't an objective success result and they don't trust themselves enough. And most business owners, I'm like, you know what you're doing. What did you, you were, you're successful. So what did you stop doing? And they're like, oh, I stopped doing blah. I'm like, good, just redo that. And they're like, you're genius. I'm like, am I? Just keep doing what you know already works. So that is what makes me confident as a leader. And I think it's also healthy because then when I don't have those results, I'm not confident, which makes me seek. I'm not confident. I don't feel like I know what I'm doing here because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I better go and seek it out. Makes perfect sense. You Ultimately, you've got around this finding great candidates for people. Are you a business owner who consistently hires great staff through your hiring method? If not, take action on what you've learned through this episode. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Marty. My first key takeaway, confident leaders personalise communication, especially when crafting job advertisements. They clearly differentiate between necessities and preferences, ensuring the message resonates with the ideal candidate and deterring less suitable ones. My second key takeaway, confident leaders dive deep in recruitment. They go beyond surface level assessments to truly understand the person. By crafting custom questions tailored to specific job requirements and doing thorough reference checks. They filter out those who aren't aligned with the wrong necessities. My third key takeaway, confident leaders have a solid hiring process. It's underpinned by robust and measurable methods. They regularly evaluate and improve the process to ensure consistency with attracting the right candidates. A solid hiring process also enhances the quality of new hires and streamlines the recruitment journey. So in summary, my three key takeaways were confident leaders personalise communication, confident leaders dive deep in recruitment, and confident leaders have a solid hiring process. Let me know your key takeaway on YouTube or at theculturalleadership.com. Thanks for joining me, and remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation.